There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're talking about immigration. I realized that there were so many things about immigration that I actually didn't know well, which is why I have two experts on, Stephanie and Irma, to talk to us about how immigration affects uh, young people. And I learned so much in this episode. Many of these kids ended up then being suspended, and that administrative proceeding, whatever outcome was uh, came from that, was being used by the local police to determine whether or not they were engaged in gang activity or members of a gang, and then were sharing that information with ICE. And before we jump in, I'll just remind people that you got to get close to the work and that curiosity has to be the first uh, the first step. That people ask me all the time, they're like, how can I get plugged in? What can I do? And there's some, you know, you can definitely join a group. There are a lot of great activists out there doing a lot of interesting work and like, that's important. The thing though is that you are not as big of a help if you just like don't understand any of the issues. So like start doing some research. If you care about mass incarceration, start like researching the Prison Policy Institute or the Vera Institute or a host of other places that are doing incredible work around this just so you can just understand it better. Like, you got to know what the details are at, at some level. And I just came back from prison visits. I just came back from meeting with elected officials uh, across the country and, uh, you know, back home right now. And one of the takeaways from all of those meetings is just how much people have forgotten that, like, people built this, that none of this is permanent. And because people built it, people can build something different. And that the way you start to learn that is that, like you see the pieces, you like do research on that policy. You're like, why do we do it this way? It's like, oh, that was like a law made in 1902 or like, why is this like this? It's like, oh, that was a rule that got instituted by that judge. And like when when your curiosity takes you to the system and structure piece, you're reminded like somebody did this. This is not the only way that we can conceive of any of this stuff. Immigration, education, criminal justice, like somebody made this and you can be the somebody to help us make something new. Let's go. And now the news with me, Brittany, education professional, former member of the Ferguson Commission and the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is Dre, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. And Clint, I didn't forget about the I-I-I, so I'll tackle him right here. I-I-I. You could forget about it. I think everybody <laughs> would be completely fine with that. Clint's already done with it. He's like, you know, never I thought, again. thought we were transitioning to a new moment. The people aren't done with it, though. That's the case. I'm just trying to treat what the people say. I got people seeing me on the street and yelling I-I-I. It's like, <laughs> my, child is, my child is concerned. He looks up at me. Who's like, who's I-I-I, daddy? <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Happy March Madness. Happy March Madness. One of the most wonderful times of the year. You Go UNBC. I, what I love about March Madness is that you really, 
They, everybody makes big game of predicting what will happen, and it is really the most unpredictable time in sports. So UMBC is the first number 16 seed to defeat uh, one seed in the men's tournament, in the history of the men's tournament. Pew, um, pew, pew. I think there was a, a, a Harvard women's team who did it a couple decades ago. Shout out to them. We can't forget pew, pew. Um, the the history that they made. But, but in the men's tournament, this was unprecedented has never happened and they not only beat university of virginia they wiped the floor with them it was embarrassing shout out to umbc <laughs> also shout out to you whoever is handling umbc athletic twitter because they were on fire they were on fire it was amazing when are they going to pay these players and that is the thing i hate most about march Madness. how does it work can like an individual school decide to pay the players or does it have to be league-wide no, no that it's, would be it's in an NCAA, NCAA rules. Yeah, that'd definitely oh, wow. be an NCAA violation. And it's not just paying the players, right? It's all of these tiny violations that when you think about it are really problematic. So you often have students who are coming from low-income backgrounds, and we know that there are lots of incidental costs that are involved in college. And you've got students who like are making millions of dollars for the university by way of their playing, by way of merchandising, all of this kind of stuff who can't like afford to eat. Right. And it's just, it, there are, there are so, so, so many problems with it. And I think people operate under this sort of misconception that the students who are, who are playing for these big universities either secretly have a whole lot of money or that they are taken care of by the university and they like never go hungry, that they are like staying in luxury hotels. Uh, and that is not the case, right? Like there are countless, countless examples of uh, so many of these, these kids, honestly, these, these young people and these young men and women who are, as Brittany said, literally going hungry uh, because they don't have enough food to eat because their stipend isn't uh, enough yeah. during their breaks. Um, isn't covering everything. And then if they take if they take money, even nominal sums of money from people to be able to say buy tacos, that can be a violation of NCAA rules. So it ends. It, it, there's there's lots of fascinating documentaries and research on this. Um, I think Schooled is one of them. I think it's on Netflix, if not on iTunes, that I watched that was really good. The Fab Five documentary, uh, their Thirty for Thirty, goes into this. Um, there's lots of conversation about it, but I, I hope they find a fix very soon. And this is a great segue into uh, my news for the week. And so my news is based on research by Anthony Abram Jack, uh, also known as Tony Jack, who's a friend of mine and a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Shout out to Tony. Shout out to Tony Jack. He's the homie. That's my dude. So Tony's done a lot of research on uh, what he calls the privileged poor or the doubly disadvantaged. And this idea that there are uh, students who come from uh, low-income backgrounds who were fortunate enough to go to uh, really prestigious or private elite schools, you know, and that, that allows them to go to these elite universities. But uh, there is still a sort of cultural and social capital that, that they're missing that, that animates and shapes the way that they navigate their experience. And then there are the doubly disadvantaged who are students who uh, both went to schools that didn't prepare them effectively and they grew up in impoverished communities who go to these top schools and are uh, sort of doubly disadvantaged when it comes to navigating what can be like a very difficult space in terms of like a lot of these elite universities. And so in this particular aspect of his research, Tony collected data in 2016 on colleges that have adopted uh, no loan financial aid policies. And that's sort of one way of measuring a school's commitment to lower income students. Uh, 
and and ostensibly these would be the universities that uh, reflect the most forward thinking and progressive policies around uh, supporting impoverished students. But what his research reveals is that roughly one in four of these universities and these colleges kept their cafeterias open during spring break. So three out of four of them closed their cafeterias during spring break. And at Harvard, where he teaches, it wasn't until 2015 that the administration opened the dining halls during spring break. And that was a project that Tony was directly involved in. Additionally, there are some colleges like Smith and Carleton College uh, who charge students additional fees to stay on campus during spring break. And so, you know, whether it be 10 or 15 or 20 dollars a night, that might not seem like a lot to many people. But when you are a low income student who literally is not going on spring break because you can't afford to leave campus in the first place, that the college would one, shut down the dining hall and then two, uh, charge you to stay on campus uh, is is particularly egregious. And and one story from his research that uh, I found particularly striking and, and compelling in sort of the worst, worst way was when Tony was interviewing a student and she talked about the way that she was trying to navigate sort of making ends meet during spring break. And what she did was she sort of increased her online dating activity to secure meals. And Tony says, uh, quote, banking on men paying for the first date, she felt that her best option was to use Tinder as if it were open table. That was pretty devastating to read. And, and I think that this young woman's case is, is reflective and sort of a microcosm of a much larger phenomenon that a lot of people honestly don't consider, even in their own universities and for their own alma maters. And uh, that's part of why Tony's research is so important, because it sort of illuminates these things that uh, were happening right in front of us in ways that many of us weren't even cognizant of. One of the things I found so interesting in his research was kind of how he covered which classes or groups of students are protected and which ones aren't. So he talks about special concessions being made for athletes, for international students, for students with certain campus jobs, but often low-income students or first-generation college students are not one of those protected classes. And I, you know, my mother... um, was a higher ed administrator. She started the very first multicultural student office at our largest public university in St. Louis, in part because we all know that often when you are coming from a low income background or you're a student of color, there are one or two people on campus that you know are looking out for you, right? Like I will meet people to this day who will say, I wouldn't have graduated or I wouldn't have been able to afford to eat or I wouldn't have been able to afford my classes or my books had it not been for your mother. So what what does it mean to actually turn these experiences from highly individual if you find the right person or if you have the right kind of caring administrator or teacher on your campus, you will make it to systemic where we actually are thinking about entire classes of students who we know will have a harder time persisting through college. Um, shout out to an organization called Braven, which was started by my friend Ami Eubanks Davis to address the opportunity gap in college. Uh, and this is one important aspect of it. What you've brought forth, Clint. But what we know is that only a fourth of first generation low income college student enrollees actually attain a quality first job or go to graduate school, in part because persistence is so hard when you either do not have a family history of, of going to college and or college is very difficult to afford. So, you know, students are coming with unanticipated costs and they're meeting unanticipated costs. They're coming with family commitments and having to send some of the money that they make uh, back home. Um, 
you know, they can't take on unpaid internships like wealthier students can. And that dictates their ability to attain the kind of employment or graduate school admission that they want in the future. Uh, and so there are many, many ways in which we fail first generation and low income students when we do not think about them in their entirety. Um, and we do not think about some of the challenges that we can mitigate up front if we actually care to do so. Yeah. And just building off that point, Brittany, I think you know, what would it mean to create, you know, systems and structures that actually ensure that the voice of first generation low income college students is at the center of these decisions and how they get made? It, it appears to me that these things are sort of these decisions are getting made without uh, folks in mind, without any any idea of how this is impacting students. And often it has to it, it comes down to, uh, you know, something, you know, happening that is really tragic. Student, a lot of students getting impacted before this even comes to the attention of administrators. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do we create, uh, whether it is like an advisory body or some sort of uh, structure that uh, sort of vets these decisions and provides uh, clear, you know, recommendations and has some sort of power in the process to actually make sure that everybody's being taken care of uh, and can, can affirmatively uh, ensure that resources are being spent in ways that center folks who are most in need. I was reading a, a, a sort of corollary piece about this, and, and it talked about the cost of being first, like what it is like for low-income first-generation students who go to college. And and I and I just like that phrase, like I hadn't thought about that phrase, like the cost of being first. And that about 11% of first-generation students nationwide earned a bachelor's degree when it was about 55% of students who weren't first-generation college students. And with 4.5 million first-generation students sort of entering college, so we have to start to shift uh, beyond access. That, like, we spent so much time trying to make sure people got into college. And you think about, like, how high schools have changed is that they were so focused on graduation, so focused on making sure kids got into college that people didn't think about, like, how do we make sure they complete college? And how do we make sure they have the resources to actually succeed and excel? Especially when they don't come from a legacy of people who've been to college, like, no fault of their own. And we know that first-generation college students are four times more likely to leave college after the first year. And you think about, you know, we've seemingly sort of won a lot of the access fights that we have fought. But you think about, Clint, even what you said is that, like, you know, you can't afford a $300 round-trip ticket home and uh, Uber ride and all those things. So you stay on campus because you're broke. But then you get charged for being on campus, right? And it's like not coming from a legacy of wealth or even a legacy of high income has a huge impact on the completion rates. And like, we want people not only to get into good colleges, to get into any college that is good for them, but we want them to actually be able to take advantage of it and, and actually complete it. There are a lot of schools that are doing this, right? To bring it back to Tony's research, there are a lot of schools that are keeping their dining halls closed. There are a lot of schools that are charging students to stay on campus. Uh, I would encourage everybody, uh, one small thing that you can do, I think people are always like, well, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? You should call your alma mater and you should see if they are a school that is participating in this uh, this like egregious phenomenon and like let them know and, and have all your friends who are also alumni uh, get in touch with the institution. And, and that is how this sort of change happens. Right. Is that universities have to become cognizant of the fact that the people who are responsible for keeping the doors open, the people who are giving money every year uh, are, are not going to continue to give money if it means that, you know, low income students at these universities are are like being being charged for being poor. Call Washu about dining halls. Done. So my piece of news uh, is about Austin. So there have been three package bombs sent in the mail uh, that have gone off in Austin, killing two people. And this has been something that 
has been severely underreported. Uh, so three bombs in a row over the past two weeks. So the first bomb killed uh, Stephen House, the second Draylon Mason, uh, and the third bomb injured uh, 75-year-old Esperanza Herrera. And these are bombs that appear to be targeting uh, prominent black families in Austin. So the first bomb targeted somebody who, uh, whose grandmother co-founded the Austin Area Urban League. Uh, and the second bomb targeted somebody who uh, founded his own money management firm and was close to the uh, Wesley United Methodist Church. Uh, and the third bomb appears to have targeted somebody uh, who had a similar name to, so could have been mistaken for uh, being a relative of the first two. And what's interesting about this, number one, the fact that, you know, there has been much national news coverage on this. You know, you could imagine uh, if, you know, prominent white families were being targeted by bombs sent in the mail, like that would be a national, you know, terrorist crisis that everybody would know about by now. And second is that the bomb makers, uh, according to ABC News, uh, the bombs displayed a level of sophistication indicating that the bomb maker or bomb makers were highly skilled. Uh, So this is not you know, just somebody in their backyard, you know, playing pranks or sending, you know, something small. This is something that uh, is highly skilled, might be organized, clearly seems targeted uh, as an act of terrorism. And, you know, the latest piece of this is that there actually was a an arrest made uh, following a bomb threat to South by Southwest, uh, that they arrested somebody, uh, a younger white man who made the bomb threat, uh, and who had, according to his social media profiles, was sort of an avid, you know, Second Amendment, uh, gun rights, white supremacist type. Um, so we don't know if it's yet connected to this, but that would be the fourth sort of bomb-related incident. You know, I say all of this because, one, this is really serious. It appears to be targeted, organized, highly skilled uh, bomber. And number two, we still don't know if this person is uh, at large or whether uh, he is the person that, that they did recently arrest. Uh, so, you know, we have to get to the bottom of, of who's sending this uh, and whether this is connected to one person or a broader network. There was another bomb that went off in Austin. Uh, it looks like the victim is white this time. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, like, what changes maybe. You know, it's a while that there, that there have been four bombs in Austin and it's still it's only now just sort of consistently being in in the public conversation and and just how wild that is. So maybe now that the the victims seem to be more racially diverse, it'll it'll change, but it is sort of shocking that it has gone unnoticed or it just didn't make the national register. You know, if if these are white communities that were that bombs are just showing up in people's doorsteps, like we've shut down neighborhoods for many reasons across the country. You think about even like the Unabomber and things like, you think about Ted Kaczynski and and other cases that have happened across uh, the country where the response was just so different. So I'm hoping that this stops in Austin. I'm hoping they figure out whoever is bombing, is like putting bombs off in neighborhoods because this is just a little wild. Yeah, one of the victims that I had read about in the GRIO, which is um, an outlet for African-American news, um, was of a 17-year-old, Draylon Mason, who was an honor roll student at a prep school in Austin, was an aspiring musician and apparently a very talented um, violinist. His grandfather was a renowned dentist in the area. His grandmother was the co-founder of the Austin chapter of the National Urban League, which is, of course, a legacy civil rights organization. Um, And I... You know, I was down at South by Southwest twice um, and to be very honest, didn't hear much about this at all on the ground. Uh, It wasn't until I was headed back for a second panel that um, my boyfriend was like, 
be careful down there. And I thought it was just one of those typical, you're traveling a lot, always be careful, always look out around you. And he was like, no, there have been like there have been um, deaths there. Uh, and the, and the, it was, I asked him to send me news about it and there actually was not nearly as much news that he should, he was able to send me as he should have been able to send me uh, to this point that you're making, DeRay, that it, the coverage was just uh, quite skimpy and it actually required uh, us looking at a lot of um, African-American outlets and outlets committed to telling stories of people of color for me to find any information at all about the victims, about what was happening, about the police investigation, um, because when I was on the ground, nobody was talking about it. There were not additional precautions, certainly not for those of us who also identify as people of color. There were not any warnings. There were no travel advisories, nothing. We just everybody just kind of went and did their South by Southwest thing. And a lot of people, I think, found out about it afterwards. One thing that's really interesting about uh, the news that's sort of tied to this is that, that Texas has a sort of suspiciously low number of hate crimes that have been reported, uh, and especially in relation to a lot of the other states that have a similar population. So, for example, California, which has 38.8 million residents, uh, and it was the only state bigger than Texas, uh, reported 931 hate crimes in 2016. And New York, which is the nation's fourth most populous state, uh, recorded 595 such crimes. Compared to Texas, which reported roughly 178, uh, according to the Texas Department of Public Safety. And and this is just a reminder that uh, it is very unlikely that the entire state of Texas, with 26.9 million residents, only had 178 hate crimes occur over the course of uh, 2016. Reporting matters here because last year, Mississippi, um, 64% of Mississippi sheriffs reported no hate crimes from 2009 to 2014 in Mississippi. Right. right? So Zero hate crimes. None, apparently. None. No hate is in Mississippi. It is all love, clearly. So unfortunately, news about hate crimes continues to march around the world. A woman named Mariel Franco had just spoken out against police violence the night before she was killed in Brazil. She had spoken about a young man named Matheus Mello, who was a low-income black man also living in Brazil, who was killed by police in the favelas. Um, she, the next night, had gone to an event intended to empower young black women in Brazil, and women across Brazil of all races were finding strength in her voice, just like a woman named Isabella Salgado, who emailed me the news about Mariel Franco and her assassination. So after attending that event for young black women, Mariel Franco was ambushed and killed in her car along with her driver. Uh, she was 38. She was a rising political star. She was a very popular councilwoman and was actually the nation's fifth highest vote getter. She was an outspoken black woman and activist. And most importantly, she was a human being who should be alive. Hopefully this is not the first that you've heard of this news, but if it is, I want to let you know that tens of thousands of people have marched all around the world in her memory and with a determination to keep her fight alive. But I think it's so important that we don't take for granted the risk that people all over the world take on to speak truth and to fight for justice. And women and women of color are particularly vulnerable, as are people of color and low-income people generally. But if you look at the political context of Brazil right now— um, there is no less than a police state that exists uh, and that has been empowered 
by the current administration. And this is exactly the result. What This is what happens when power is unencumbered, when power goes unchecked. People suffer. I am sad that the first I heard of Mario Franco was in her death, but I am now and will forever be deeply inspired by her sacrifice, by her commitment, by her unapologetic willingness to speak truth to power, um, knowing the risk that came along with it. I personally was really shaken by this story um, because you just never know what's coming around the corner when you choose the work of justice. But Isabella asked me to bring this story to the pod today. She's a friend of the pod who still lives in Brazil. And Isabella, I want you to stay safe. I want everyone down there fighting for justice to stay safe. And I want you all to know that we have your backs. Just to provide some context around the issue of police violence, particularly in Brazil, Brazil has the highest known rate of police violence in the world. About half as many people are killed in Rio de Janeiro alone uh, as in the entire United States every year. And so this is, you know, an issue that is so deep and so intense uh, in Brazil. And and to see the lengths with which uh, it appears that, you know, the police and, and, and the government may have gone to you know, essentially assassinate somebody who was seeking to uncover and and tell truths about what was happening and how communities were impacted. I think that is uh, it is scary. It is not only unjust, but it it is something that we have seen in our country and in in our history. Whether it is you know the assassination of Fred Hampton and and, and others, you know, it's a reminder of the risks of engaging in this work and also of the severity and importance of continuing to engage in that work. Because, you know, this is something that's not going to change until there is, you know, a massive shift. Uh, And we saw, you know, following the assassination, we saw, you know, thousands and thousands of people coming out into the streets and demanding justice and demanding change. And and I'm hopeful that 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 movement will continue to grow and and continue to have impact in in preventing uh, and reducing police violence in Brazil and, and indeed sending a message of what can be done across the world. You know, I heard somebody say this not too long ago, but we are only in the second generation of seeing civil rights leaders grow old in this country, that there's a legacy of people uh, getting killed, generations of civil rights activists getting killed across the country. And when I think about her death, I think about how the horrors of uh, things that we have been told would be in the past are actually really present. And I think about the FBI visiting my house. I think about the FBI visiting your house, Sam. And Brittany, you got death threats and had to have a bodyguard for a little bit. That, like, this is still it's still dangerous to speak truth to power. So I've been thinking about a lot about her death. And I've been thinking about the work that has to continue all across the world. This is uh, scary. You know, they want us to be too afraid to continue to do the work. That is why they've always done this type of stuff. So to add some helpful context to this, Marielle Franco is, you know, as an Afro-Brazilian woman, uh, is part of a, a demographic of people uh, whose political voices have been historically and, and also in a contemporary context remarkably suppressed. You know, Brazil is uh, a country that is majority women. But women represent, uh, you know, per the data that I have based on uh, 2014 elections, um, only represent 10 percent of all the congressional seats, both at a federal and state level. And we know that Brazil is a racially pluralistic society with people who have the diaspora, have the African diaspora in in their ancestry in, in many, many different iterations. You know, knowing all of that. 
when the new president was uh, put into office in 2016, he named an all-white, all-male cabinet. I think some people might feel as if the U.S. is the only place struggling with racism in the way that we are, uh, and that other countries are struggling with different things, maybe xenophobia, but like the U.S. has this, and the U.S. does have a very unique relationship to anti-black racism, but uh, but we should never forget that even before people, you know, slave ships were uh, crossing the Atlantic to go to the New World and to go to the United States and North America, they were going to South America and they were going to Brazil. And there is a long history of black voices, despite being a huge and significant part of that population, um, having their social, political and economic mobility hindered in a state sanctioned way. And and I think both the symbolism of having an all white, all male cabinet and the the very real isolation uh, from the the sort of proverbial table that that black Brazilians and that uh, women in Brazil uh, have experienced makes the possible assassination um, of this remarkable remarkable woman um, even more difficult to stomach. You know, um, I'll just close by saying that there were some days that the threats were so credible I didn't know if I would wake up to see the sun the next day. And I know that there were nights that we were out in Ferguson and the folks were out in Baltimore and didn't know if we would live. And the risk is real. And yet I know that there's no other work that any of us would have chosen to do. And it's been said that those in power can kill one, two or three flowers, but they can't stop the spring. And the last line in Isabella's email to me was a request that we keep Marielle's fight alive. And so I just ask that you remember to always choose right, to always choose to work for justice, to never let people stand in isolation as they do the good work of our communities, because we're more powerful together and can protect one another as long as we stand in strong numbers. And as completely messed up as I am over what happened to her, I am ever more committed, as I hope everyone listening is, to make sure that we see justice for people across the world. Now, my piece of news is about Alabama. So in Alabama, there is a law that is from the Depression era that allows uh, sheriffs to keep the leftover money that is not used specifically to feed inmates. So if, if they get like $5 per inmate, any of that money that's not used on the meal, they actually get to personally pocket. And sort of what is, what is wild about this is that there have been a couple stories about it by an incredible reporter in Alabama. Uh, his name is Connor Sheets. Is he's written about this twice so far. Uh, and what what the sheriffs will say is that they're like, well, well, we wouldn't take that. We wouldn't personally pocket this money if the law changed. And there's this one sheriff who actually spent like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of this money to buy a like new beach house. And and it's like just think about like what is happening that we have built a system and allowed a system where there's a financial incentive like not to give people full meals because you can just pocket the money when there is quote leftover money but the little bit of money that they're getting to feed uh, people incarcerated right now is like not anywhere near what people outside of prison would use for food like it is incomparable like it's not enough money to start out with and the thought that you're feeding them less so that you can pocket the rest of the money is sort of wild it is a, a microcosm of you know a broader system where jails and prisons are profiting off of people who are incarcerated, people who uh, are often you know low income 
people of color, people who don't have means and are still deprived of so many basic needs uh, and you know, exploited uh, while they're incarcerated. Alabama, in addition to, to this law uh, that you mentioned, Ray, Alabama allows jail inmates to be charged room and board for being incarcerated. Uh, it charges jail inmates for medical fees, uh, folks who are in the prisons. Alabama is one of a handful of states where 98% of prisoners uh, work with absolutely no pay, zero pay, like not cents. And everywhere else, it's, you know, you know, 20 cents, 40 cents an hour, sometimes a dollar. Uh, in Alabama, their prisoners are unpaid completely and still required to work. Um, and so, you know, there's a, this whole system in place uh, to make life as difficult as possible for folks who are incarcerated uh, and to benefit, you know, the prisons, uh, the sheriffs, the prison staff, like everybody else at their expense. And I think... Now, the more that we uncover the different layers of this, uh, the clearer it is that, that we have to be active on all of these fronts in order to dismantle the system. So the thing that frustrated me most about this story is that the sheriff, when pressed about it, not only did he not deny it, he was basically like, the law says I can do it, so I'm doing it. And until the law changes, I'll keep doing it. And as Sam shared, most of the jobs that incarceraries in Alabama are performing every single day are unpaid. The average salary in Alabama is just under $40,000. And this sheriff, by his salary alone, takes home $93,000. So what in the world do you need with extra money that should be either going back to the state or should be going to actually feed incarcerees probably far better than they're being fed right now. I'm absolutely disgusted. And this is a clear reminder that legality cannot be our only bar, that it can't just be about what's legal in order to meet the standard for an acceptable public servant or public official, that the bar actually has to be morality, constitutionality, uh, legitimacy, many more things just besides what's legal. So I have spent the last few years uh, working in and, and in teaching in prisons uh, in Massachusetts and, and most recently in Washington, D.C. And, and one thing that you consistently hear over and over and over again from the men and women who are in prison and in jail is that they are hungry. And it's fascinating because it is one of those things that that I don't think m many people consider in the sort of broader public discourse around mass incarceration. We think about the violence that people in prison may experience. We think about the uh, sort of inhumane conditions with regard to the way that uh, they're treated by the correctional officers. We think about uh, solitary confinement. We think about all of these different things that, that are, have a very real, obviously, impact on, on the lives of folks who are incarcerated. But I don't know how many people are fully cognizant of the fact that the the nature of how many calories that people in prison are uh, allotted is completely dependent and subject to the whims of the local uh, sheriff's department, completely subject to the whims of the local municipalities. Um, and so that there's no there's no real standard across the country. There's no standard across states. So the Southern Center for Human Rights did a big study uh, that was focused largely in Georgia that found that Meals were often served uh, 10 to 14 hours apart, that the meals that people were served were so meager that they reported chronic headaches, weakness, irritability, difficulty sleeping because they were so hungry. Uh, one man had only two bowel movements over the course of 19 days because he had had so little to eat. So this is a real thing, right, that 
one of the most difficult things about being incarcerated, among many things, is that you are hungry all the time because, again, the incentives, whether it is a private prison or whether it is a, a you know, quote unquote, public prison, the incentive is for these institutions to spend as little money as possible taking care of the people who are incarcerated. And Clint, what you made me think of, too, is that, like, if there's even agreement that, like, some people do things that mean that they need to be separated from society, that the separation from society is actually a consequence enough. That that alone is a is a pretty substantial consequence. So we don't need to like pile on other consequences like solitary confinement, like not feeding people full meals, making them pay exorbitant fees for a phone call. Like the separation is actually a big enough consequence that the other things become things that respond to people's sort of desire for punishment and punishment that they can see and that they can feel. And we'll never get to a justice system that actually works and rehabilitates people and and helps people like learn skills and make different choices if that is just the conception of justice that we have. It doesn't make sense. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. And now my conversation with Stephanie Gibbs from Safe Passage Project New York City and Irma Solis, an attorney with the NYCLU. Irma and Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Can you start by telling us what you do and where you do it? My name is Stephanie Gibbs. I'm an immigration attorney. I work with Safe Passage Project as a supervising attorney and... Our focus is on representing kids who are facing deportation. And I'm Irma Solis. I'm the Suffolk Chapter Director for the New York Civil Liberties Union. And uh, I do a little bit of uh, organizing, advocacy, and support um, any impact litigation on um, issues involving civil rights and civil liberties. Why kids? Like, why, why, why do you focus on immigration, specifically around young people? Is it so different than immigration issues for adults? Like, how did you, why, why kids? Hmm. Well, I think that the reason our organization focuses on kids is that in the immigration court system, there is no right to appointed counsel. And so when you have vulnerable populations like for anybody, no right for anybody, no right for anybody. So you have the right to find your own attorney and you have the right to pay for your own attorney. But the government isn't going to help you do either of those things. And they have no obligation to. So and anybody can be subject to removal proceedings no matter what age you are. So you could have children as young as months old who were carried across the border, brought in with brothers or sisters up to the age of 18, 21. You have no right for the government to find you an attorney to represent you in immigration proceedings. And if you don't have an attorney, the government 
the judge will give you an opportunity to try to find one a couple of times. But eventually your case has to move forward. And without an attorney, you are expected to represent yourself no matter how old you are. And so no matter how old you are, no matter how old you are. This was a decision that was most recently litigated in the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, we're talking children as young as like seven, four, and they're expected to be their own lawyers. If we didn't exist, if Safe Passage Project wasn't stepping in and saying, we will find you an attorney, we will represent you ourselves, that child would have to go forward on their own in front of an immigration judge across from an ICE attorney who's prosecuting that case. And they would be expected to articulate their request for relief from deportation to explain the legal reasons why they shouldn't be deported or why, even if they could be deported, why the government should extend humanitarian protections to them. They would be expected to articulate those things on their own. Now, what makes immigration court different from like the court system that we see on TV? So the most important difference is that the immigration court system is an administrative court. The immigration court system in the United States doesn't exist in the federal system. It doesn't exist as what we lawyers would call an Article Three court. It's not part of the judiciary. It is part of the Department of Justice. The Executive Office for Immigration Review is a subset of the Department of Justice, and they organize and run the immigration court system across the country. Are the judges like the judges they get appointed by Congress? No. They are part of an approval process, but they are appointed and they are the employees of Jeff Sessions right now. Really? Yes. That the head of the department- Why do I know this? I need like an explainer. That's why you're here. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. That's exactly why we're excited to be here, because this is a common misconception that somehow the immigration judges, the immigration court system is an independent arbiter, when in fact it's not at all. It's controlled by the policies um, by the executive branch. It's specifically controlled by the attorney general, who at this moment is Jeff Sessions. The attorney general actually has has like real influence over the way the immigration courts function. Absolutely. Right now. As an example, Jeff Sessions has taken upon himself the question of, do immigration judges have the authority to control their own calendars? Meaning, if I have a case in front of me and I'm an immigration judge and I'm looking at this person and I'm saying, you're going to get a visa, but this process is really long and I don't want you to have to keep coming back to court because it's a waste of our time. It's a waste of the government's time. And you're a child. And so it's a big burden for you to have to come all the way down to immigration court, which might take you five hours hours to travel. You know, the New York Immigration Court is a really wide jurisdiction. They all have to get to downtown Manhattan. Um, so, you know what? It's not really worth our time to keep coming back and keep coming back. Tell you what, we're going to administratively close your case, take it off the calendar. And when something happens, your lawyer can write to the court, we'll put it back on. Or if something negative happens or DHS has concerns, they can always recalendar the case. Kid gets arrested, something else happens, extenuating circumstances. Anyone can recalendar at any moment. And Jeff Sessions has said, I'm not so sure immigration judges should have the authority or do have the authority to control their own calendars. I'm not so sure about that. And so right now, there is an amici process where he said, you know what, I want people to write to me and explain to me what they think about this authority. What types of reasons are people being hauled into immigration court for? Like, what are the, I only know what I like have seen on 
TV, so which means I have no clue what is actually happening. Right. I, I think if I, I like to start with just sharing a little bit of what we began to see um, in Suffolk County. Um, we began to see uh, parents um, who were coming to us telling us that their children had been suspended from school um, because they had allegedly uh, been engaging in gang activity. Um, and that led to um, many of these kids being picked up by ICE agents. How would ICE know that they got suspended from school? Well, that's a very good question. Um, a question that we asked ourselves um, once we learned, we saw that uh, we began to see a pattern of um, these kids being suspended, um, and oftentimes many of these kids having absolutely no contact with the police outside of the school, um, and also no criminal records. And the only contact these students had um, were contact with the school resource officers in their schools, or um, whenever. Um, officers who were in the Suffolk County Police Gang Unit um, would be called into the schools by, by the principals. And so we once we began to see a pattern of um, a lot of these kids being suspended and then being picked up by ICE, we uh, also um, were given information, right? We began to see um, and hear from these um, the parents and other students that um, they actually were um, being put on some type of list by um, Suffolk County Police Department um, officers. Um, and so we were uh, advocates in uh, meeting with the police commissioner at the time as well and were asking him on a you know regular basis uh, what their policy was um, related to uh, how do you identify someone who's a gang member or who is um, engaged in that activity and um, um, you know, he pr pretty much had a very difficult time telling us exactly what indicators they were using. Um, and so one of the things that we um, began to, to also notice was that the schools themselves um, were relying on um, the police to inform them of what those indicators were, uh, uh, you know, as per their um, school codes of conduct. And um, but at the end of the day, we, we saw, well, none of them seem to know um, or are able to articulate what indicators exactly are they using. Um, so many of these kids ended up then being suspended. And that administrative proceeding, um, you know, where they go through a suspension hearing, um, whatever outcome was uh, came from that was being used by the local police to um, then determine whether or not they were engaged in gang activity or members of a gang. Um, and then were sharing that information with um, ICE as part of their strategy to remove a lot of these kids from Suffolk County streets. What's the lawsuit in Suffolk County? Prior to last summer, children who were in ORR detention, because it's technically different than ICE detention, had no right to a bond hearing. They were languishing for literally years sitting in these detention facilities with no right to challenge the allegations that the government had brought against them. So the government was saying, you're a gang member. This is why we think you are. And there was no ability for the children to get in front of a judge and say, no, I'm not even though they were in removal proceedings. Amazingly, somehow, the immigration judges were able to say, mm, technically that's ORR, they're not in this court, so we can't deal with that issue. And so the, that was the lawsuit that resulted. This is the Saravia litigation um, that now the children 
have a right to challenge those allegations in front of an immigration judge. And ORR has to come into immigration court. They never had to do that before and justify why they're holding these children in detention. But the challenge is that at the end of that hearing, even if the judge says, you know what, I agree with you, child. I don't think you're a gang member. I don't think the government's met its burden of proof. I don't see you as a danger to society. You got suspended from school. That's not necessarily a crime. Or maybe you were arrested, but there's no conviction. I'm not really seeing enough here. I am going to order you released. But again, this catch-22 for people that are under the age of 18, they cannot just release someone who's a youth that young out into the world. So Right. Um, Even though a judge had already said um, they're no danger to society, they could be, you know, um, released pretty much. Um, ORR uh, came back and said, well, we're going to have to review these cases um, and vet them a lot closer, um, thereby uh, pretty much... uh, refusing to release these kids. Um, oh, I said that they needed to do an additional review. Exactly. An additional review, which um, for some kids uh, meant uh, many more months, potentially uh, in detention. And so that's one of the reasons why we, we decided um, for, you know, it, to, to file this um, class action. Can I appeal an immigration court decision? Yes, you can. But the first layer of appeal is still within the Department of Justice. There's the Board of Immigration Appeals that, again, is still under that executive office of immigration review. You have to go there first, and then you can get out of the agency and into a federal court. But the standard of review and the burden is harder and harder the higher up you go. And so many of these decisions are based entirely on the discretion of the immigration judge. If you're going to get a green card, in any case, in any immigration court, anywhere in the country, you have to show that you merit a favorable exercise of discretion. And that, that's, the guide, that's the statutory guidance outside of you know, meeting all the eligibility requirements. So you have to go that extra mile and demonstrate that you're a good person. You have to you know, weigh as much on, in favor of you getting that as possible. And it, the same is true for anybody that is trying to get out of on bond. And so imagine that you have these allegations sitting against you. The government doesn't necessarily have to prove that they're true. They don't necessarily have to demonstrate to the judge that you are an actual gang member. The only thing that the government has to prove in a bond hearing is that you're a danger to the community, yourself, or you're a flight risk. They don't have to prove that you're a gang member. The allegations alone can be considered in immigration court. Now, what advice do you give people who think ICE is coming after them because they've targeted other people in the neighborhood or they have a feeling that ICE is coming or like what advice do you like if if in contact with ICE, what do you do? Um, one, uh, one of the things uh, that we've been doing a lot of has been um, after parents um, came to us because they feared that immigration might either raid their workplace or, um, you know, pick them up on the street. Um, we've been holding uh, uh, legal clinics <clears throat> to uh, help prepare, help them sort of know uh, what documents they should be keeping in one place, safe place. Like what? Ultimately putting a safety plan together. Are there things not to do in the presence of ICE? Are there like misconceptions? People think that this is like the thing you should do and you're like, don't do that. 
I mean, for our clients, you know, it's so it's so fraught. I mean, it, you know, the know your rights stuff, that's as much as you can tell people, you know, ask to see a warrant. Don't open the door until you see it. So like, they need a warrant. They do need a warrant. They do a need a warrant. Signed by a judge. Signed by a judge. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and don't open the door unless they can show that to you somehow. And the, the immigration court judges are the people signing the warrants. No. Not necessarily. Oh, like any judge can sign it? It depends. It varies from, you know, various procedure to various procedure. You know, you have an enforcement action. You could have, you know, a district court judge from Central Islip signing those. You could have, it it really does vary quite a bit. I think for us, it's um, it's multi-layered because we're dealing with so many different systems, right? Um, One of them is the education system um, out on in Suffolk County is, is, made up of many school, different school districts. Um, and each one has its own code of conduct. Each one has its own, um, you know, a policy on how they relate or how, how much they allow um, the police to come into their schools and, and what interactions they have or access to information they have of their students. Um, so on that end, I think, um, you know, a lot of work really needs to be done on making sure that um, schools understand, right, um, and, and understand their obligation to protect their students' privacy and safety, right, without over-relying on um, local law enforcement. And um, also making sure that they are very careful in how they implement their disciplinary um, practices, right, in, in making sure that they um, make a clear assessment of how it is that um, they are targeting specific students of, of color um, versus, you know, their, their other um, students. And so, you know, just m- making sure that it, it's, it's, it goes away from just the law enforcement component. And the other is, is with the local law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, currently, we have both, uh, you know, the Suffolk County Police Department and the, the Suffolk County Sheriff who have pretty much said that they, um, you know, they are willing to uh, really collaborate very closely with immigration. Collaborate <laughs> might even be a nice word. For right. Well, that's doing. that's what they're saying they're doing. But what we, you know, have been seeing on the ground has been that they have gone, they've been very proactive in um, really reaching out to um, ICE uh, to come in and do what oftentimes, you know, they themselves as law enforcement agencies would not be able to do um, without really um, keeping with, right, and respecting due process rights. Um, you know, if, if they had to arrest someone, they would have to, at least there would be that level of, right, um, oversight um, w- through the criminal justice system. Whereas now they are actually using ICE um, as a tool mm. to circumvent, mm. right, all of that. So for us, it's it's very important that we, um, you know, continue to advocate um, to have uh, Suffolk County Police um, Department and other law enforcement agencies to simply, you know, say, no, we're not going to be, um, you know, working in this way with ICE any longer. We're going to disentangle ourselves from them. Um, and now what about the comparison between the last eight years and now? Um, well, I, I think, you know, in in our, pers- you know, 
for many advocates who have been doing this work for a long time, um, you know, we, we do agree that under the um, previous administration, um, a lot of the ground was laid, right, um, to kind of, uh, you know, allow um, some of these uh, policies from this current administration, from the Trump administration, to just come in and... and and, and really take it to another level, I think, right? Um, so a, a lot of the structures were set in place. Um, you know, there were many, um, you know, raids and, and people being um, deported back then. And, you know, that's something that we, we need to, you know, also say that that happened um, before we, um, you, you know, and also acknowledge that, you know, since the Trump administration, it's increased twofold, right, in that. And, and the reason it, it's done that is because they have their strategy has been to go into the local law enforcement agencies and say, you know, we need your help. And, and, and many of them, unfortunately, are willing to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially out in, on Long Island, mm-hmm. um, they've been willing to do that. So they're, they've been able to um, increase their, um, you know, uh, their activity um, on the island because of the local enforcement's willingness to work with them as well. Right. And now what about Magic Wand? Um, I think for me, because I'm in the court so much in the immigration court system, the one thing that I would want, especially as we're talking about immigration reform, right? Like this is a live issue. Everyone's, you know, bringing this up. I would want judicial independence for immigration judges. They should not be in the Department of Justice. They should not be under the control of any presidential administration, because we have seen how difficult it is to have consistency across the board, to have consistency, you know, within the courts themselves, to have predictability. I mean, this is a professional institution. The judges are doing everything they can to, you know, adhere to their mission and to administer the courts in a very professional and dignified way. But when you have when you're subject to the whims of an administration that's completely unpredictable, that, you know, that completely throws a wrench in the process. And so and I would say that, you know, it cuts both ways. Right. Like people were very happy about prosecutorial discretion when we had President Obama and he was, you know, he was administratively closing these cases and, you know, really working with the private bar insofar as they could. But, you know, and conservative side was a little bit more up in arms about it. And I think, you know, Chief Justice Roberts had a lot to say about prosecutorial discretion at that moment. But now that we have President Trump, we're seeing just how far to the other end the pendulum has swung. And for me, the court system needs to be taken out of that. It should not be politicized. It should not be part of the administration. And so my hope and if we're going to talk about immigration reform, I would hope that this is something that's on the table. And this is something that I know the chief administrative judge, former chief administrative judges, um, the union of immigration judges all support this because they want to protect the integrity of the courts, the dignity of their mission and the professionalism that, you know, they should be bringing to it every single day. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you both friends of the pod and I can't wait to get another update. Hopefully it'll be on the brighter side. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank Greg. you, Ray. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. And I can't wait to see you back next week. And remember to come see us in person on April 4th, the National Geographic live show.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.